Welcome to PR for Humans with me, Mike Sargent, the show for the best communicators in the business. In each episode, I'll be listening to their secrets and stories, using their insights in the book I'm writing about leadership communications. Do follow me on Twitter at PR for Humans, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Visit my website, sergeantleaders.com. You spell sergeant just like the police and the army do. Today, we've got Jerry Griffin, a seasoned PR pro who led client training at Burson Marstella before heading out on his own with a new kind of training business built on digital content. SkillPill provides mobile and digital learning for many of the world's top businesses. We met up to talk about training, what works, what doesn't, how to make engaging content, and the old chestnut of how exactly do you teach communications. Jerry, here we are at um, SkillPill. So uh, before we go you know, back in time to your earlier career, just just bring us up to date. Tell us what SkillPill is. Uh, SkillPill provides digital learning. So that's soft skills learning, leadership management, uh, personal skills, and including communication, uh, media training materials, uh, mentoring, coaching, and so on. Um, so we have content deals with people like Pearson and Education. We create uh, micro-learning videos and templates and tools. Uh, we then have a system to get them out to corporate. So we transact our content to 120 countries, 15 languages to companies like uh, IBM, Coca-Cola, Dell, um, American Express, and, and so on. So it's been going for eight or nine years, um, going quite well. And I still do some guest training for pet clients of mine on the side because I've always done that. I quite enjoy doing it. Yes, yeah, so I'm interested in, in, in the media training world. Um, doing quite a lot of that myself so just just tell us about the transition from from training in the room to developing a, a online or mobile training what, what are the similarities and what are, what are the differences well it's down to the I mean again a little bit of a jargon in the world of, of, of training for starters because you know I started as head of training at Bursa Marstella in the late 90s and then became head of communication at London Business School so I've oddly straddled uh, the world of training and communication and sort of toggled between the two over the years and still to a degree still do uh, but, but, but a good trainer in, in the room so to speak can teach people self-awareness can use their intuition to course adjust during the day and can help people uh, it's a, a good trainer I think face to face is like a chiropractor they wait for that moment to give them a click and then once they've built the trust and give people the click they go ah and then you can start throwing in some of the technical skills. Digital learning doesn't, doesn't do that. It's self-directed. Um, there isn't anybody who can use their intuition to course adjust as a result. So it's best used really as a bridge between a more uh, formal, i.e. face-to-face, moment of learning and a moment of application. So imagine that you did a, a media training session for a customer and, and were naturally rated a 5 out of 5 for it. The, the data would show that unless that candidate did a media interview within six weeks of that, and we know quite a lot of the time you've got a, a corporate who'll send a bunch of people through it and then six months later they get called on to do something, the data would show that 85% of that content would be lost. Mm. And moreover, more worryingly even, we don't know what 15% has been retained. <laughs> so it's more luck than design that that individual has in fact retained enough of the stuff that you've got in order to be you know, better, faster, stronger in front of the camera, in front of the microphone. So the optimal use really of digital learning is to give people the ability to tap quite quickly back into that aha moment that you provided them. Mm-hmm. So it could be using things like neuro-linguistic programming triggers uh, or getting onto your, your, your mobile phone to collect your material and give them that concert feeling again just in advance of that uh, media training 
intervention, not media intervention, not media training intervention, media intervention. So the data would then show that if they went back into some blended learning or digital learning before that uh, media interview, they would be at least 10% better than had they not do it. So it's, it's, a, it's a pill. It's a quick, um, easily digestible recap in, in all situations, or, or does, does this format work for longer-form training or even introducing completely new concepts? And ideas? Well, I think that longer-form learning is probably better done as that more formal early instance, if you like, and certainly the area I'm interested in, micro-learning and mobile learning, it's best done as that quick fix. But it's not necessarily trying to teach you new things. It is, and it's more than just a summary, really, because a flashcard or, or you know, those little things you used to have in our wallets or purses or what have you, uh, you know, five things, ten things not to do, and they're yeah. great. But I think what digital can do, particularly video, is they can also emotionally connect with you as well as just giving you the cheat sheet. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, it gets you back into that moment of confidence, of confidence that I, you know, I can do this. Which, particularly for newbies in front of a, a media environment, you know, they need that. Or in front of a presentation uh, environment, they need that sense of confidence as well, rather than just you know, look, don't look at the camera and take a glass of water and so on. It's more like, oh, let's let's. Showtime. Yes, and there's a sort of list of, of tips and techniques yeah. and things yeah. to do, but there's also, crucially, with these sorts of things, with leadership, communications, and media, it's about um, confidence, it's about emotional intelligence, sure. it's about a lot of softer skills. Sure it so, is, yeah. so you, you have to kind together. of try and capture those with your content. Indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really, ultimately, the, the win here is that somebody then sits down in front of uh, a colleague if they're giving a review or in front of a camera if they're giving an interview or, or what have you that they're doing it in a way that comes across as natural and spontaneous uh, they're not goofing up at least too much and and they're you know trying to get their business objective across as well because they're not doing this for free yes and you you're a big believer I guess that you can you can teach these things you can teach people to become better leaders to become more effective communicators um, to master some of these um, skills but it has to be done in the right way and you have to be you have to remind people mm. of the best that you've you've taught them well I think you can teach people not to be rubbish at things yeah uh, and that's but you can't take a, like a 1 out of 10 and make them a 10 out of 10 or can I you don't, I don't think so mm. uh, I, I think that extra rock and roll but I, I don't think people need to be 10, and t- 10 out of 10 really I mean I, I think you know I'm a big believer in just being able to do the job pretty well um, but doing a lot of it pretty well and when people get you know critiqued about things is that because they are giving poor advice or, or just doing things quite poorly so I think training can help you know get you up to a baseline and then your natural skills and practice as well and listening to people you can get better at it and so I think experience tends to get you better at it but certainly you see people who are naturally better at um, communication than others for sure Mm -hmm. in the way that if somebody saw me at the gym they would probably realize that there's certainly a lot of people better they're more flexible surely not (laughs) than I I am Um, but it doesn't stop me just doing my bit to try and you know stave off you know old age really so so I think training has its role and it depends what people want to do I think they they claim the 10,000 hour rule which I think has been a bit disputed that you can master things with enough uh, enough practice I've been playing the guitar for 35 years and, and I can tell you somebody <laughs> listened to me and think well it isn't bad but I can't, be, I can't believe he's been at it for three decades <laughs> so, so 10,000 10, hours are surely up by now but you can get better there must be, <laughs> yes. give, give us hope give us hope yes. um, what, what's, the big, what's the big area that people are most interested in when it comes to workplace training are there, are there, any, are there any trends that you're, you're particularly focused on at the moment well I, I think um, there's there's a big focus on and it does come back to the communication areas which is important 
is is the ability for people who are vertically quite good at something, which is maybe accounting or research and development or what have you, to be horizontally better at things, which is the ability to give people feedback um, and to reach out and connect with people in different ways. Um, so the softer skills, I think, are absolutely key. Uh, and our people are understanding now that there's almost an implicit hierarchy that softer skills are easier to do and maybe not so valuable as the technical skills. And I think it's it's got to turn on its head. The organizations that are doing well in the marketplace are the ones that are not technically arrogant, if you like. That, uh, that's a phrase I use from Shell that they uh, coined in the late 90s after the Brent Spar issue when Greenpeace turned them over for uh, the, the North Sea rig uh, uh, problem. And the, as Shell said, we suffered from technical arrogance. And that meant that you know, we'd done the, the, the checklist, we'd done everything properly, as a result, we're correct. And you're thinking, well, actually, the world's a bit messier these days. It's more interesting as a result as well. And just because you're right doesn't mean you're actually right out there in the marketplace. Uh, moreover, the ability to listen empathetically and to course adjust based on what you hear I think uh, makes you more authentic as an organization and as a leader as well. So those are skills that um, are not natural to a lot of organizations, actually, and that they do need a lot of good face-to-face learning as well as potentially support from digital skills to help embed that learning in their day-to-day piece. Mm -hmm. So I see a lot of things around authentic leadership, around interpersonal communication, Diversity inclusion is coming through is quite a big thing. Digital transformation is another big topic that we're working on at the moment as well. So there's some interesting things going on, but it's really around how organizations really course adjust in the 21st century to all the sometimes scary but mostly interesting dynamics that are going on out there. Mm. And, and the, hu- the human skills are so, so central to that. To that. And, and in business generally, as, as technology advances, that's a kind of paradox that the human skills become just as important if not more important um, well I think and I put this down to something like YouTube really that I, and I kind of the phrase I rather rather glibly um, rather glibly use when I'm, when I'm doing uh, my talks is that the, the digital age has put a premium on, on analogue skills really and what I mean by that is that when I started training back in the 90s when you know all of this was just fields um, <laughs> the there was, a, there was a premium on uh, let's wait for the trolley car to go past as my, as my drinks tray getting ready for five o'clock um, copy with the 90s um, but uh, there was a premium on you know being slick being on message uh, blocking and bridging and, and, and all the great techniques that kind of shunted you from where you didn't want to be to where you do want to be in a dialogue and I think because there was such a then uh, kind of a fixation on you know the, the, the kitten running up the stepladder uh, and everybody did t- 10 billion views on it that people actually began to distrust the corporate video mm. with, with the helicopter shot and the flags and the, and the rousing music mm. and instead wanted to see the real thing. Um, and I think there's almost a swing away and a distrust from the veneer kind of video mm. type of communication mm. and more towards just tell me the real deal. Mm. I don't need to agree with everything that you do, but I would like to understand where you're coming from. Um, so I think in an odd way, the, the fact that everything's now on a camera and production values are not as critiqued the way they would have been 15 years ago means that being authentic and being real actually has come to, to the fore as a result, which are these soft skills and these analog skills. And I think really, as we sit here in 2018, one of the biggest things that somebody can display is that they care about things. Mm. Uh, not that they're brilliant or a genius, but that they care, that they care about their colleagues, they care about their customers. Um, and the uh, conversely, the, the big sin in the world of communication is to show that you don't care. Mm. 
that you uh, have demonstrated somehow or other a disjunction between what you say and what you do. And that, if it's found out, can really pull you to pieces. Yeah, and you, you care about something more than just making money, more than just the commercial side. There are bigger things in the world that you that affect you and that you want Indeed. to show that. To yeah. I mean, I think you can frame your uh, commercial ambition in a perfectly uh, laudable way, you know, that you want to grow your business, you want to uh, give more employment, uh, and so on. I don't think there's any issue with that at all. I don't think profit is, a, is a something to be, uh, to be ashamed about. But uh, to do that in a sustainable fashion, you need to care about your community if you've got facilities, you need to care about the environment if you've got packaging, uh, and, and, and all of the rest of it as well. So this, just because something is legally right, increasingly is going, well, is that the case? And the whole debate around, for example, the tech companies paying their tax and choosing to pay their tax in a particular country uh, has shown that, you know, of course they're all doing what is legally uh, right because they've got, you know, shibboleths of consultants running around to show how they can do these things. But people are going, you know what, why don't you just pay the bloody money, you know, because you've got tons of it anyway and you can't do much with it, you know, and and just get on with it, you know, we're buying your stuff, Mm. you know, you don't need to be so greedy. And I think we're sort of coming to that now, you know, why are we doing this? You, your background is in comms, and yes. lots of people listening to this will be, be in PR and yes. communications, and they're primarily concerned with reputation. Yes. Is reputation something that you can, you can teach, uh, you can train someone to um, take certain steps to have a, have a better reputation? Do you, do you believe? And if so, what, what might those be? Well, of course, uh, certainly in the, the remaindering warehouses around the world, there, my book on reputation management is still sat there on pallets. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I've, I've got, I've got um, absolutely, there you go. Yeah. They're never traveling without it. Yeah. Um, I think certainly there are some techniques and steps you can do to stop your reputation being pulled apart. So I think the area of consistency, we always go on about consistency, is very important. Or at least the will to consistency, which is consistency of what you say and what you do. And this is back to other outside people in the ecosystem, perhaps media or, or NGOs, showing your inconsistency, saying, well, you say this, but you're doing that. And that inconsistency can pull you apart and as a result, pull down your reputation as well. So um, I think there are certainly some common steps that organizations can take to maintain the reputation and it revolves around knowing who you are as an organization and there's a great book by Rob Goffey called The Character of a Corporation which shows you how you can be whether you can be a mercenary company or being a network company or a communal company and once you've figured out your star sign then being consistent with that you don't all need to be sitting around you know holding hands not that you can really do that these days either but you know what I mean in terms of a kind of a, that kind of message but as long as you're consistent with your brand and how you do things, that's okay, I think. Um, but uh, you, I think consistency is absolutely key, and I think that is a learned skill, and you can bring in folks to help you anticipate and remove those moments of inconsistency, mm. uh, and at least have an explanation as to why you do things in a particular way. You've got a business in Myanmar, for example. Well, just have a policy around why you've done that. I remember you know they were getting kicked years ago on, on hard talk about that, but at the end of the day, they had a reason why they were in Myanmar. Yeah. Let, I totally agree. Let's talk about content. Um, yes. That's your, you know, your business really, I suppose, is, is making uh, content or, or turning content, which might be, say, business books, into engaging mobile or yep. video content or, or whatever it happens to be. What, um, what makes content engaging? What, what do people look for? What do they want? What, what works these days in 2018? Well, we looked at our, our Skill Pills library as the most popular Skill Pills last year. 
And number one, and just remember now, we did this in 120 countries uh, for many corporates, was active listening. It was the first one that everybody looked at. And I'm delighted with that because I think, particularly with me, who blabbers away, active listening is a very important and what, skill. Just, what is active listening? Active listening is the ability not just to be silent and wait to get your answer back in there, mm. but to try and unpack the real issue behind somebody's posture. Mm. So if somebody says, I'm a bit stressed, the inactive listener would say, you know, have a glass of beer or do something relaxing. The active listener would try and unpack that stress and then say, you know what, that stress is actually quite good for you at the moment because what it's allowing you to be is be an optimal performer. But over time, that's a bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So the active listener has got a series of techniques to unpack what's lying behind the ostensible issue. Mm. Uh, men are particularly bad at it. Um, women are better at it. This is empirical evidence. Uh, but in today's NHS, when the doctor only has 10 minutes, somebody coming in, the whole structure is set up for inactive listening. Mm. I'm not sleeping well, there's a sleeping pill. Dreadful, mm. yeah? But what else can they do? You know, they can't sit down and listen to somebody going, the reason why I'm not sleeping well is because... Dot, dot, dot. And so when you, when you turn that into content... Yes. What does that content look like? What does it need to do? What what works then? Why did, why was that one? Was it the topic, or was it the way it was presented, or was it? I think I think it's a bit. It's a bit. I mean, the the topics are are important, and we're growing our topics all the time, and and we listen to new things that are coming through. So we did a bunch of stuff on mindfulness recently, which has went down pretty well. We're looking at things like digital transformation, so people have turnkey solutions to kind of go into the digital world and so on. Blockchain. Uh, for example, cryptocurrencies and so on, to explain those to people and how they can leverage that for their business. Um, but under the hood of it, really, people are becoming more increasingly visual. So it's not tell me, show me. So we turn books into videos and they give people templates to translate the video back into action and so on. Um, easy to get hold of, so avail available in mobile is absolutely key, uh, naturally, but not so natural in the world of learning, bizarrely, until more recently. Um, people's attention spans on videos about 2 minutes 40 seconds so you can't drone on forever mm. um, you need to have a, a secret sauce as well so how am I going to be better faster stronger at looking at this video on active listening um, because if you don't build that secret sauce in there people aren't going to go back to it just as, just as readily anyway so we work quite hard to try and build in in 3 to 4 or 5 minutes these elements to it reel you in with a piece of intrigue so for example we talked about active listening earlier active listening is core to being persuasive now, we wouldn't automatically have thought of that so if we've got skill pull on being persuasive the first thing is to shut up and listen you're thinking ah I didn't think that was being persuasive at all well mm -hmm. actually it is mm -hmm. so we've hooked people at that point and then you bring them into some due difference and give them uh, some killer quotes for example came across a great killer quote in one of our skill pills recently which is about integrity doing a skill pill on integrity um, and it said according to the FBI which I love to start with because you'll shut up in this according to the FBI um, those, with those with integrity rarely claim it and those mm. who claim it rarely have it. <laughs> yeah. I thought, yes, I love that quote, and I just yeah. about remembered it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So we put that in early on to be memorable and quotable, mm. and then you bring people through. So there's certain techniques you can do in short-form learning to work people through the gears rather than going, get on with it, get on with it. Yeah. Because, again, we're a very impatient generation. And a lot of this is, is like turning 
turning business books in, into these these shorter, yes. different forms of content. But they should still so read the books, though. They should still read the books. But increasingly, don't. And increasingly, don't. And you must you must get through a heck of a lot of these books. Or, or, or I personally through. don't, but you uh, personally don't. So, some people do. But anyway, um, what you have an opinion on what makes a good business book? Um, what what is it? Is it does every business book need need one great concept, new concept, or does it need? Um, you know, a structure that we could actually put into place and get something real and tangible out of it? Or well, what do you well, look for? What has been fascinating for us is how little you can get out of a business book <laughs> once you strip it down. Yeah. Um, so I mean, a little bit well, in, in, uh, in terms of you can easily make it, do it in two minutes. I, I, well, <laughs> this, is, this is it. Um, you've got 300 pages and you, you can reduce it to about 500 words fairly, yeah. fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, I think what makes a great business book is, is somebody coming in with a different angle. Um, I'm just finishing a book at the moment called Never Split the Difference, mm. which is about negotiating skills, but it's the negotiating skills of an FBI hostage negotiator. So, and the reason why he doesn't split the difference is that he needs all the hostages out, not just half of them. Okay, <laughs> yeah. naturally enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, got you and your mom, but the rest have got to stay. Sorry about that. No, he needs everybody out. And as a result, he's evolved a methodology which is very, very practical because, again, this can't be theoretical. You're sat there in a, you know, the Middle East trying to negotiate the hostage release of it. This is what he did. So it's a fascinating book that, and one that I have finished. And so I think what makes a great business book is to be absolutely practical. Mm. As in, here's three things to do. For crying out loud, you must do the following. Mm. Okay? And secondly, um, have a different perspective. So transposing the world of FBI hostage negotiating into day-to-day business is an interesting transposition and therefore worthy of both... Uh, creating in the first place but also having having a look as well and obviously it's, it's got to judge and I've used that uh, techniques myself in difficult situations uh, very recently I, I was uh, getting off um, getting off a plane from Johannesburg to go to Zambia with my son and the uh, the guy with the passport and we just had an overnight and um, the guy said you can't come into this country your son can't come into this country because he's only got three months left on his passport and, you know, overnight flight, and, you know, it has to be said, my mood wasn't the, wasn't the best. And I, normally I was going at WTF moment, you know, yeah. we've just flown 14 <laughs> hours, we've booked in, we've done all this, what are you talking about? Um, but uh, the guy, the hostage negotiator, has got this thing, so he's got a, a, an answer back to the question uh, when the uh, guy phones you up and says, I want a million dollars or I'm going to not release your auntie. Uh, you say, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do that? So I said to the guy who was checking us through, I go, how are we going to get to Zambia? You know, we're stuck here in Johannesburg. Uh, and he says, I don't care, you're not getting on. And I said, but what are we supposed to do? And this went on for about a minute and a half, but I didn't budge. I remained very relaxed. And I just repeated it again and again. What are we supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And then as he said, you're not getting into this country, he then took my card, scanned it, and he put us on the plane. And it was just like... Wow. <laughs> and my son said, what just happened? So, sorry for deviating so, there. messages, messages repetition. Yeah, well, th- well, there was a, a type of question which yeah. throws the burden back on the other person, yeah. which is how are we supposed to do that? Mm. Don't question the process. Don't question about passport and why it should be six months. Uh, but it says, yeah, I accept that. It's for good reasons, but what are we supposed to do? And that ability to use practical solution got me out of a bind, and I had just been reading the book on the overnight anyway, so it was pretty fresh in my mind. Uh, and this is a very long answer to your question. What makes a good book is an interesting angle, uh, particularly as I saw there, and having absolutely practical application and not disappearing into the world of chalk and talk. 
strategy. There's loads of that out there and we shouldn't knock it. TED Talk does a great version of that in video format as well. But for me, if you're going to get people towards the end, give people do difference. How am I, what am I going to do differently as a result? Which is a lesson we try and put into our skill builds as well. Yeah, good advice. Jerry, thanks for a great conversation. <laughs> good job. Thanks. Thanks so much to Jerry Griffin and the very best of luck to him and his team at Skillpill. That's it for today. Please do listen in next time to the PR for Humans podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Goodbye.